Hello and welcome. I'm Jill Martin, the host of the Morning Bell podcast. We're back from our hiatus with this special episode, the second from the Somerset Celebration of Literature this year. In this dual episode, Ian and I are joined by Jackie French and Tim Harris. Jackie French AM is an award-winning writer, wombat negotiator, and was the Australian Children's Laureate for 2014 to 2015, and the 2015 Senior Australian of the Year. In 2016, Jackie became a member of the Order of Australia for her contribution to children's literature and her advocacy for youth literacy. She is regarded as one of Australia's most popular children's authors and writes across all genres from picture books, history, fantasy, ecology and sci-fi to her much-loved historical fiction. Share a Story was the primary philosophy behind Jackie's two-year term as Laureate. We chat about the role of children's literature and the books that moves them the most and much more. I'll be back later on to introduce Tim to you. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to the Morning Bell podcast. We are at the Somerset Celebration of Literature. It is a fine sunny day, and I've got Ian here right alongside me. How are you going, Ian? Yeah, pretty good. The day's heating up now. Hey. <laughs> he, did, he did admit he was sweating. I know. Oh, I am. <laughs> she says in a whisper which no one is going to hear. <laughs> snicker, snicker. <laughs> I know. Sorry about that. Well, this is true. Too <laughs> true. Too true, Jackie. I, I'm trying to make it sound to people. Like, at least, cool. Yes. yes. Yeah. Suave, oh, yes. arrogant. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, he's really sitting here in Agboots, Nifgorescent, Orange t shirt. Absolutely. We've got photos to prove it too, Jackie. It's all good. No, it's fantastic. Well, you've heard her laugh. You've heard her on the podcast. Hello, Jackie. How's it going? Hi. Good. It's been, it's been the most magic festival and everyone, everyone's been saying it, not just the authors. Yeah. Um, mm. Yesterday, um, the kids, the teachers from Dingo State School who mm. had come mm. a thousand kilometers wow. in a train yeah. and two days later, the kids were literally still bouncing with joy at being yeah, here. The whole concept of the sponsored schools, it mm. is... So inclusive, so broad. Um, the kids themselves do so much of it. Yeah. Um, they just everything here is just done well. Yeah. Um, broadly, inclusively, and and covering um, not just topics but different ways of writing and, and presenting. So yes, it's been as always inspiring and mm. in fact um, I will leave here to um, with about another sort of three hours of ideas to talk <laughs> oh, to good. with the festival <laughs> operators about what we can even add more yeah. and knowing as it's Somerset um, they will if an idea is a good yeah, one they, they will, they, take it they on will board. run with it they will, will, yeah. they will definitely it's it's one of those things that I look for at Somerset look forward to coming uh, as much as I love doing the podcast you know mm. we'll duck off in the middle and go like spy <laughs> on people's sessions and have a great time <laughs> yep. because it's that idea that every single tent every single building mm. has a voice that's utterly different yes, than next yes. and still just as fantastic mm. right mm. Um, and the kind of writing that's being showcased isn't just one genre yep. one age group it's all over the place and that's a kind of fantasy that only Somerset I think mm. is able to bring out yes. yeah you spot it when you walk past the bookstore as well because you look at the covers and <laughs> you know you just see these transitions between them yeah and they're so different the topics um and you know thinking about the regional schools that are here uh last night we had a, a dinner where some of the young people there you know prepare a presentation and it's a really interesting experience but yeah talking with the young people who had traveled a long way to be here they were just so 
you can see the energy and the joy they were getting mm. out of being here. And I think that for everyone involved, there's a certain spirit to the festival, um, which is, uh, it's one of, it is, there is joy to it, but there's also there's a community around that of, of growing together. It's been interesting speaking to a couple of the volunteers, adult volunteers, mm. um, who came here as visitors when they were at school. Oh, wow. And the experience was so yeah. profound for them mm. yep. that they, they've actually come back, or even in, in some cases, they actually want to work in the area of, yeah. of, of doing festivals oh, wow. and things like this. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to see those stories from people who have been coming to Somerset for so many years. You know, it's the 25th year, I believe, at Somerset. Yeah. Um, and has been going strong for so mm. long. Mm. I mean, we were just speaking with Jess Watson about how she used to come as a kid yeah. uh, to, to listen to authors and then, you know, there she yes, is in a yes. tent. I can see the tent from here yep. doing a talk. And it's just that wonderful vibe of getting authors together and also bringing authors and readers and their readership so close yes. together. Yes. I'd love to chat to you about that, Jackie, in the process of being able to speak to your readers. We've always talked about the idea that that's a really important thing, but there's no denying that in some respects that pulls mm. you away from the writing. Do you believe that it's that kind of symbiotic relationship? Is there a push and pull of, you know, I love to speak to my readers, but I also need to write? I think, um, look, there is that. Yeah. But there is also the thing, too, that it is so easy to underestimate kids. Absolutely. Um, oh, yeah. No one, no one ever says to a six-year-old, you cannot watch Game of Thrones because you won't understand it. Yeah. <laughs> we say, you cannot watch it because we know that. Oh, don't you understand it? And yeah. we don't want them to actually have to face those themes. Yeah, yes. Yes. exactly. Um, yeah. A six-year-old is quite capable of understanding something of great complexity, even if they can't read it. Mm. But even though I keep sort of saying that and waving my hands around when I do it, um, watching the kids today, the younger kids, after the talk, mm. most of them didn't go for the short funny books I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Most of them actually went for the most profound book of ideas yeah. of the ones that I've read bits out of. Mm. They wanted the most challengingly philosophical mm. book of yeah. the ones I was talking about. Mm. And for me, that's reminding me, yes, this is true. Um, kids, there's a lot of very good, funny, trivial-like stuff around for kids. Mm. But they are often starved of books of deep meaning. And yep. the job of a kid is to learn what it is to be an adult, to mm. know how the world yeah. works. Kids are often far more interested in concepts of good and evil yeah. than adults are. I mean, we're more interested in actually um, paying the mortgage or mm. getting through the traffic jam or a whole yeah, range yeah, of other yeah. things. <laughs> but for a kid, they profoundly want to know about the world. And yeah. they're deeply, deep, deep need mm. for those kinds of books. And coming to a place like this where every time, despite everything, mm. when I read out passages from three books, I expect they will go for the right funny one. Mm -hmm. And yet again, no, they will be going for the one that moved them most and mm. was the most difficult, yeah, even, well. even the very, very young kids. I think about, so it's interesting, that triggers a thought in me, um, thinking about back to the days when I was a child um, at school, some of the stories that stuck with me probably were the ones, I think about like The Velveteen Rabbit, for example, mm. Mm. or um, uh, The Snowman. Um, these, these are books which just kind of um, triggered me, especially The Velveteen Rabbit. I would have gone for a story like that, which had some really deep meaning in it, you know, mm. about this rabbit you know, mm. becoming real. It's quite incredible. So I, I really resonate mm. with what mm. you're saying about um, not talking down to children because yes, yes, there's that yeah. capacity there isn't there look extraordinary capacity mm. and also to um, 
kids love playing with ideas. Mm. Yep. Um, yeah. Even even at the age of three, kids understand about suspended disbelief. Yeah, right. Whether it's going to be Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or what have you, yeah. they know the difference between suspending disbelief and a lie. Yeah. There, is, there is a difference. And they don't mistake the two of them. Yeah, mm. wow. You know, it's it's interesting you, you speak about how readers look at that work, but there's another there's another level that I'd love to chat with you about, and that's the idea of writers engaging with their own work. And it's something that some writers do unconsciously, and you know, we always talk about the idea of natural talent and then hard work and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that I'm most interested in is the uh, the generation of ideas and mm. the romanticization of writing and the writing process. Look, it's work. Mm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Talent is too a penny. I yeah. remember um, <laughs> a friend of mine, well-known artist, had a retrospective when mm. she turned 60. And looking at her early work, yeah. it was good. She had talent. Yeah. But that was all. Yeah. Um, but as she said at art school, she said there were three or four in the class yep. who had far, far more talent mm. than I ever had. But they've never improved. Yeah, they, wow. they rode their talent. Yeah. Um, she said, I have been working at this for 45 years. And she has. Mm. Yep. Every day she works. And you could see this mm. incredible preparation there on the wall around the gallery going from, yep, not a very nice talent, dear. To genius yeah. in, 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 the, in the ten years before that. Um, there is an enormous amount of craft for writing. Um, look, if a kid has got a talent for, for medicine, no one's actually going to put a scalpel in their hand. It's going to do brain surgery. You will say no. You are supposed to actually study a whole range of complex things. Which that sounds great to me, Jackie. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, we don't need medical schools. Yeah. <laughs> just, give, just give them a scalpel and let them go. Look, they'll work it out sometime. Yeah. <laughs> but look, it really is the same with yeah. writing. Um, yes, yeah. the talent is there, but look, talent is, is to a penny. Talent's common. Um, genius is where you've got determination and you work at it. Mm. But also, too, um, learning that you are writing for the reader, not yourself. Yeah. Um, learning that... You've only got seven seconds to capture the reader, and mm. if you lose them for seven seconds, you've lost them, and they will probably not open the book again. And the same with an editor, if you want to get it published, mm. you've got seven seconds to capture yeah. them. Understand with things like imagery, that imagery is like salt, that if you add a tiny pinch of salt to food or to bread, mm. that will accentuate the flavours too much yeah. or you taste the salt. Mm. Imagery is a most wonderful tool, but if you use too much, mm. it's like salt. All you see is the imagery, um, you, you lose the thread of the character, the plot, the theme, etc. and all people see. Um, there is a lot to learn, but also mm, it's yeah. work. I mm. also believe that the first idea that you get Yep. is probably second-hand. Um, humans yeah. are a storytelling yep. species. When we tell our best friend what we did last weekend, we are telling stories, we're creating, we're, we're all good at this. Mm. Um, but it also means that we think in cliches, we've got to. Mm. If every time you cross the road you thought, ah, now, car, what is a car? <laughs> right, okay, um, you'd either be run over and spot or yeah. you'd still be there on the footpath. We have to think in cliches. Yeah. So it means that the first idea you get usually is cliched. Mm. But the more you think about it and question it, mm. the richer, the more vivid and the more original it becomes. Mm. So the more work you put into it, mm. um, 
literally the the better the better it is going to be. Yeah. So did you find over the years um, that you've been you've been writing that? Well, did you write you know for your whole life? Did you start early writing, or did, was it something you kind of uh, worked into as you went? No, look, I always knew I wanted to be a writer from at least the age yeah. of three. Yep. I wrote right. my first book on the Sunday afternoon when I was six because I was desperately bored <laughs> and there were no more books to read. Yep. And the headmistress loved us and had a copy printed off for everyone in the school. Wow. And wow. I kept writing books. I wrote a trilogy at 12 or 13. Mm. Um, unfortunately, um, um, I was forced to leave home at 15 and... Mm-hmm. Um, Everything I'd written, in fact, everything I owned was then taken to the dump. So I've lost wow. all my early work. Mm. But um, no, I kept on writing. Mm. But I was always told by the best of intentions, yep. you cannot make a living being a writer in Australia, dear. Yeah. So it wasn't till my early 30s, desperately mm. broke in a shed in the bush with a baby to support and $106.44 to register my car. Mm. A friend who was a freelance journalist suggested I earn money writing. Mm. And yeah. within three weeks, I um, got a book accepted, um, uh-huh. a column in the Canberra Times and a column in a farming magazine. And suddenly, I was making a living as a writer. I have to say, not a terribly good living, no. but it was a lot better than anything I'd earned for the rest of my life up, and, up until that point. Yeah. And that's been um, that's where the way I've supported my family ever yeah. since. Wow. And so do you find that as, as you went through that process and you, know, you had a book accepted, um, did you find there were particular influences that were, that were kind of um, – because you've obviously done all that writing when you were a child and a teenager. Yeah. Um, did you find there was – that because we've been talking – sorry, I should give some mm. context. We've been talking about voice a bit yes. and about finding your voice. Did you find that in your 30s when you w- moved into that that your voice was actually already quite developed or did you find that other, there were other writers who you loved who you felt were still kind of in there as you wrote? No, um, absolutely the, the opposite. Yep. In that three weeks, mm. um, when I was desperate, and I knew this had to work, yeah. I got rid of my own voice. I wow. stopped writing for myself, and yep. I started writing for the reader. Yep. And that means every book I write, unless it's a book in a series, which is more or less sure. from the yeah. point of view of the same protagonist, mm-hmm. has yep. got a different voice. Yeah, right. Um, when I write, um, I no longer exist. Right. Um, I, I am writing for the reader, I am the character, I am the protagonist, mm. and the voice will depend. I mean, writing in Shakespeare's voice for yep. um, the diary of William Shakespeare Gentleman. Yep. Um, yes, I'm not Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, no, it's every book or every series, it is, it is a different voice, mm. it is a different perspective, um, and also, of course, it's even a different philosophy. The things my characters say are yep. not necessarily what I think or what I believe. It's what that character does. And, mm. okay, by the end of it, it is hopefully carefully crafted enough so yes. the reader will sure. be thinking what I think <laughs> about them. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, the voices, the voices are all, are all different. So by looking at voice in a distinctive fashion then, is it difficult to analyse that and be like, all right, I understand my own voice, so then I can work at it. But if you're writing in another voice, is that is that a challenge? Yes, it is. Mm. Um, and particularly because a lot of my books are historical. Mm. So it is very hard not to include modern idioms, etc., etc. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not a matter of putting sort of these and what have you. Mm. Um, language changes. Um, but particularly to um, the last book I've been writing, one of the characters would have used Thieves' Cant from 1810, Mm. London. And that would be unintelligible to the reader. Mm. So it was a matter of putting just enough 
to actually give it flavour. Yep. So sure. they knew it was pretty much a different dialect. Um, but also making sure there was no modern, modern idiom at yeah. all. And in fact, cutting that out, you usually need to go through it several times yeah. to actually yeah. find what you've just subconsciously put in that, that, that would be wrong. And also to um, having the plot as well as the voice. Hinge yeah. on, this is what people would have thought mattered yeah. back mm. then. That... And, and being that, able and that to matters. communicate that to the reader yes, as well. Yes, yeah. yeah. People mm. do things for different motives. And that's, that's one of the joys of writing about the past. Yeah. Um, people had different motivations back yeah. then. Um, mm. do you rem I remember reading Peter Pan as an adult right. to my son. Mm -hmm. and, and the phrase there, and we will die like Englishmen. And, yeah. right. and I was sort yes. of rolling around laughing. <laughs> this is hilarious. <laughs> We're going to die. And, um, but look, as, as yeah. a kid, um, that was still... Post-World War II? Okay, yeah, well done. Yeah, I, yeah. yep. I like Englishmen. Are you yeah, serious? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, There's definitely that acceptance. Yeah, there. yeah. Mm. It, um, just thinking about that then, um, and you mentioned about the, the different voices, do you find, how do you approach research, I suppose, in, in those areas? Do you find that you... Um, you set aside a period of research or do you kind of keep going as you're writing? Is different processes. No. Um, I've always been fascinated by history with yep. different worlds with ideas. Mm. So, no, I tend to research, find all of the um, primary sources I can for a subject mm. I'm fascinated with. Yeah, sure. Then years later, I will suddenly realise, okay, this is where the book will be set, the theme fits there, the characters fit there. Yeah. If I need to research a subject, mm. I don't know enough about it. Right. Did women have pockets? Did they have scullery maids? Um, yeah. So many things we assume we know about sure. the past and we don't. So... If I need to research, mm. I don't know enough about that subject. There'll be little things like was it Tuesday, was it a particular Saints Day, yep. um, things like that. Um, the last book has actually got a sailing voyage, so I needed to actually find what time of the day the wind will actually swing around to the south and things like that. Yeah. So there'll be little things, yeah. but the bulk of it, no, I won't, I won't research. Mm. Um, I'll know. I'm also lucky, though, I come from a family of storytellers. Um, mm. yep. In my early years, we lived with my great-grandmother and mm -hmm. I spent most of my holidays with my grandmother. Mm. And they told me the stories that their great-grandmothers had told them. We're yeah. a very long-lived family. Wow. Mm. And it means I heard the stories from 200 years ago mm. um, that had been told to someone else, what, just one, one voice away. Mm. So... Mm. I've, I've actually heard the whispers from 200 years ago from the many, many branches of, of my family. Yeah. And so I've, I've grown up with the voices from the past, including um, their diaries, their letters, etc. too. So this was something I've, I actually had all my life from, from a baby. It's a powerful connection to the past, just thinking about that. It's something, uh, my, my family history, you know, we, we, we have a fairly uh, vague idea of that, but I recall just um, just after I last visited home, um, the, my aunt came down with my grandfather's diary from the uh, from the Second World War. So I, I, it's very special, I think, oh, to yes. have those moments uh, where you have that kind of connection to your past. And I imagine that that then would flavour the, the, oh, the yes. desire to tell those stories. Oh, yes, yeah. too. But also one of the really interesting things about diaries too is most of it is boring yeah mm. and that is a challenge as well yep. um reading um cook's log for example mm. um this was um life-threatening 
But basically, it was day after day after day. Um, yeah. Faced ferocious storms, sails <laughs> sails cracked. We all got scurvy, and you go on month after month after month. Yeah, um, um, exciting to live through. But how do you actually make that interesting? Um, Another terrifying reading, storm. Reading, reading. Um, I know a diary from actually World War One, which was so touching. Um, mm. Day after day after day, he just recorded the names of his friends who died. Um, wow. Wow. Um, one of them, he actually recorded how he was blown up and he um, trying to find enough water to wash his friend's body from him. Wow. And three days after that, um, the entry is just bad day today. And mm. this is a man who recorded these horrendous things yeah but what happened on that day mm. that mm. was so bad he couldn't record it yeah and yet he could record all the rest of it mm. um and i still can't visualize it um no matter yeah. how much i read in the the diaries or the letters i still cannot imagine mm. um, well i can imagine some scenarios but it's probably nowhere near yeah. Um, how bad it was that he simply all he could say was bad day today. Mm. Wow. That's powerful. That is very powerful. Jackie, thank you very much for coming to talk to us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, it's been mm. a sheer delight. Thank you so much. Fantastic. And we'll be here, ladies and gentlemen, interviewing more authors, so do catch up on that. Thank you very much. Up next is our guest, Tim Harris. Tim has over 15 years experience as a primary school teacher and knows what it takes to get children reading. Having presented at over 30 schools in 2016 alone, Tim is quickly gaining an outstanding reputation as a speaker and workshop leader. His first series, Exploding Endings, has sold over 20,000 copies in Australia, and his latest work is the Laugh Out Loud series, Mr. Bambuckle's Remarkables. We chat with Tim about deadlines, crafting school talks, and the writing voice. So, without further ado, I give you Tim Harris. Hello and welcome to the Morning Bell Podcast. We are here on another interview live at the Somerset Celebration of Literature. Well, not technically live. It'll be a little bit since this has come out, but still relevant as always in as you have been. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Joel. Uh, we've been here in the tent a little while. It's a nice breeze coming through, but it's still 29 degrees. It's still the Gold Coast, so... Uh, definitely not wearing my jacket right now. It no, no, I made the very poor judgment of uh, wearing my jacket in a in a not very cool tent. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Lovely to have you. Um, so, Tim, Somerset's great, isn't it? It's a really good environment and really great conversations. And great food. <laughs> yes, and really uh, good coffee. I have, uh, look, I'm not a coffee. Uh, can I tell you a story uh, about coffee? Yeah, go, go for it. So, when I was like 16... Mm. I'd never had coffee, and yeah. I was in year ten. I thought, what if I can get through to year twelve and not have and coffee? Not have coffee. Oh, so yeah. I got, I did it. I got to year twelve, yeah. and I was now eighteen. I thought, not many of my friends were in the same boat, so I thought I'm going to outlast them. So I got oh. through uni. So I was wow. twenty-one, hadn't had coffee, and then I got to twenty-seven. I was playing with bands and got to got to travel the world playing shows, which was fun. I was in Japan yeah, and we yeah. just played a show, and I went to. Um, have tea with a mate and a bandmate and we ordered tea but lost in translation they brought me a coffee and so he said to me he said Tim what are you going to tell your grandkids (laughs) that you don't drink coffee or you drink coffee in Japan 
Oh, and so there you go. I had it, and I can't remember what it tasted like. <laughs> wow. There you go. The self-control, my yeah, goodness. Wow. I so mean, Coca-Cola, that's where the caffeine... <laughs> ah, there we go. There right. you so go. still a caffeine hidden there, right? That's right. Well, the coffee here I will recommend to anyone who, uh, who comes to Somerset. The coffee is good. Yeah. No, self-control when I was young. No way. It was yeah. tea straight pancakes, up. Pancakes, though, I'll be having no oh. self-control with them. Really? So I hear they're good. Oh. Will Kostakis says they're good. Really? Okay. All right. Well, if Will says it's good, it's good. It's got to be good. There you go. <laughs> Well, Tim, this it's really been interesting over the last couple of years, speaking with authors. A lot of it has been about writing craft, but this time when we came back to the festival, we really wanted to talk about the idea of talking, the idea of conversation um, between the author and his audience, but also how it either helps or can, you know, so sometimes um, it's a symbiotic relationship for a lot of authors, but some authors also feel like it's a tax on their creative um, lives it interrupts almost um, I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are on this you know you're very you've <laughs> I mean I saw the signing lines um, they love you obviously and and that idea how do you balance that with the writing itself you know writing is in one sense a very introverted kind of craft but authors are now expected especially in YA and children's to engage with your audience regularly yeah, it's a, it's a good question, Joel. And and you're right. Uh, writing is it's very intrinsic. It's very introverted. It's very it's done in quiet. Um, and as someone who was a teacher, and I was used to having a very uh, sure social kind of job. You know, yeah. spending a lot of time out, putting energy in conversations and managing people. Um, and so to suddenly sort of switch from that to writing, yeah. it seemed quite natural then that that the presentations is where I had a chance to be a teacher again, in a way. But but quite a fun teacher because yeah. <laughs> instead of it being a lesson and the students then going and learning, they, look, they're still learning, but rather than them go and do an activity, it's a case of presenting information in a fun, tangible way, mm. getting them to laugh, um, and it balances the job. So it means that, uh, look, it's, it's only my third year not full-time teaching. Uh, last year I probably was maybe a little bit too many school visits. Yeah. In, for, well, I'll never say no to a school visit because mm. it's... it's it's a sure, very important yeah. thing, but in terms of my energy levels, I've probably felt maybe I just slightly overdid the touring. Um, but it's just finding that balance. Um, yeah. Between, but yeah, but they are very different extremes. So for this year, what are we, March, mid-March, so I'm just on the back end of three weeks on the road. Um, South Australia, Tasmania, Queensland twice in different weeks. Yeah. And then, uh, before that, was just at home writing. Yeah. So you can see how it's just one extreme to the other. It feels mm. balanced, but it's a roller coaster. <laughs> do you find uh, do you find time to write when you're on the road, or do you prefer to compartmentalise it? Because like, um, I, I know for some people that I know, the classic case is George R. R. Martin, who you know reputedly just you know writes one computer, old '80s computer at his home, and that's the only place he writes. But then yeah. some people who love to write on the road. Do you find that you're one or the other, or you're a bit of a mixture? Yeah, I've had to do some editing on the road, Ian. Um, mm. So. Last week in Brisbane, as soon as I was done from a school visit, straight to the hotel, yeah. straight to editing yeah, yeah. because it was a deadline. Yeah, and if right. I didn't, yeah, I'd yeah. be in trouble and there'd be no pancakes for <laughs> <laughs> uh, So, yeah, uh, writing as such, I sh at the moment I'm on a, a, de a tight deadline, um, yeah. but I'm delib deliberately leaving it this week and I'll try and make up time next week. Uh, just a bit of moonlighting, up extra early, and then mm. I've got three young kids at home and when they're off at preschool and school, mm. it'll be production. <laughs> yeah. 
have you have you found though? I'm sorry, Joel. No, no, go have for you it. found that you've um you the your expectations of um so you know you've st- um, so how many years now not not full time teaching? Been... This is the start of the third. So right. just over two, really. Yep. So how's how do you find that's matched your expectations of kind of making that transition? Did did you have expectations, or do you feel like it's kind of been a natural thing for you? It's been a really gradual morph. So when I resigned full-time teaching, I took on a lot of tutoring because mm, I figured like, if yeah. I'm working after hours, the void, I can yeah. say yes to any school who asks. Yeah. And so that was a strategy. Um, and I did a lot of tutoring to, you know, to pay a mortgage and, and support a family sure. in that first year. Um, but then as the school visits picked up, I could yeah. slowly drop it off. And so I still do a bit of tutoring now, but uh, it's a nice balanced level of I've got just a handful of students, private tutoring. We talk about writing and I get to still teach and get to have some relationships. Yeah. Um, but then the rest, nine to five, is essentially either writing, mm. doing emails or uh, touring. In, in communicating with young people in that sense and talking about writing and the writing process, Sometimes I've, I find that, like, even even talking about it can sound quite dry, right? We're, we're talking about words and we're meant to try and engage them. Like, how, where do you think the energy comes from, um, their reaction to what you're talking about? Where does that love for writing stem, do you think? Yeah, so in terms of the talking about writing, I find mm. that sharing the stories behind the stories can mm. be quite engaging yeah. because it's how you come up with an idea. And there's sure. a story I share with the kids for uh, one of my, f- my first Exploding Endings books and it's the true story of the day I was walking down the street. Um, you know, I was literally had just bought milk and I'm walking home past this house, looking straight ahead, didn't look into the house and this little voice calls out from the front yard, mm. oh, excuse me, do you want to buy this for five bucks? I turn, there's this kid sitting on a chair in the house and he'd drawn an iPhone screenshot. He'd just drawn a screenshot and he was trying to flog it to me for five bucks. And so, uh, you know, I politely said, oh, no, no thank you, not, no, not for me. And I kept on walking. And, and as I got further along, I thought, this could be something for a story. And I started thinking about how well, I was a kid once and yeah. make his day if I went and bought it. So I yeah. went back. I walked home. I walked all the way back about a kilometre to this house with $5 to, to buy the screenshot because I knew that, A, that there's probably going to be a story in this, but B, even during that moment, I was thinking, I can use this in school presentations. And so actually I got photos of it straight away. It's Google Earth for the house, screenshotted it, put it <laughs> in my presentation and share the story about how this triggered the idea. And, and then, of course, as a writer, you exaggerate. So in the story, it's a kid yeah. who wants to make money. So he starts selling anything he can find in his house for five bucks, mm. including the television. Yeah. <laughs> and things slowly build up to the point where his house gets invaded because everyone's after a bargain. Yeah. Um, yeah, so talking about so sharing that, uh, can be quite an engaging thing as well. And often, um, uh, if it's a little bit drier, then I'll try and choose a reading that's not so dry. So I'll mm. try and choose a reading that will get them laughing. And you sort of test it over time as well. And when I first started with, with the one book, I found that it was it felt quite thin. But then when the second book came on, you, you keep the best part of the presentation for the first book. The bit, mm. And for me, it's always about what gets the, the most laughs or you know mm. what gets them really excited. Um, and over time, you kind of accumulate things so now it's nice having essentially two series and six books to choose from there's plenty to talk about yeah yeah it's it's curious because you know you mentioned about engagement engagement and about laughter and about humor right and humor is a huge part of children's lead um the the thing i'm interested in in asking and it, it seems you know quite offbeat in one sense but but um we were just talking with uh, Will Kostakis about the idea of loss and the idea about losing something and about sadness. Um, is it is it difficult to write about 
uh, tough topics or sadness or just especially for a younger audience and how do you deal with that yeah i think with with uh, my new mr bambuckle's remarkable mm. series i've tried to do that yeah and there's a story in the first book um the one with the yellow cover and it's about a boy named carrot who um so th- there's a lot of funny bits in the in the book like it, there's lots of laugh out loud moments and yeah. constantly get that feedback which is good but for, for this book we wanted to have some some character development like as in characters changing and characters sure. experiencing things that that grow them so this little boy carrot he lives with his pop and that's his whole family so i mean i don't talk about where his mum and dad are i just just don't mention it so mm. the reader can make yeah. up their own mind yeah he's got no siblings but he's got his pop and he loves his pop so much so you can imagine there's a very tight relationship sure. there. and in this story his pops uh, he's got all this pain and every afternoon he's got to ride his bike into town to get medicine yeah. and carrot says oh pop you know um, can I get the medication for you? And of course, Pop says, oh, you've got to be 18 to buy that medication. And so Carrot feels trapped. He can't help his Pop. Mm. Pop hasn't got enough money to buy a car. But then one day, Mr. Van Buckle says, uh, we're going to have a drone race and the winner gets a car. Mm. So it could... And so Carrot suddenly comes out like swinging all his enthusiasm for his Pop um, because of that, that strength of relationship that I have. All the meanwhile, he's getting teased because of his orange hair. Yeah, yeah. Carrot. So exploring Carrot's character was we use the publishers and I use the word poignant for that story because mm. some readers have said that they've, they've actually been brought to tears with it, which yeah. is just coming off the back of laughing. So I would like to explore some. So giving characters some growth is a good thing. Mm. In terms of things like you know issues like loss, I haven't really covered yeah. covered that yet, um, but just starting to get into you know thinking about that for for future stories mm. in Mr. Bambuckles. Did, did you find that was a natural kind of progression moving into talking about something that's maybe a little heavier in the middle of the humor or do you, did you find that you had to kind of did you find that the technique was similar um it was just kind of a bit of a change of tack and what you were doing yeah very much so so for the first series all the stories are self-contained so they're all funny short stories and they're not linked but with the second series mr bambuck all the stories are linked so as this as the book progresses and there's funny moments um that the, the the one big overall story is happening and that's where there's richness in, in exploring issues. Sure. And so that's one thing that we tried really hard with yet and I've got awesome editors at Random House mm. um, and Victoria Stone and Zoe Walton did such a great job of trying to bring out bring out that emotion. Um, and we were really chuffed last week when they did the Notables. Uh, in that list of notable books, Mr. Bambuckles was there and there's one of the there's yeah. two sort of funny, it's a laugh out loud funny yeah. and there was only two in the whole category mm. that were laugh out loud. And mm. so we were, we were really touched because the the content had richness to mm. it as well as being funny, so we're very happy with that balance. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, do you find that there are particular influences? Because I think about when I was um, a, a child reading, um, and I, I did some thinking about voice recently, and thinking about who were the, the you know the people that kind of I felt like when I started writing were writing through me a bit. Yeah. So, those heavy to, influences. Yeah, exactly. So I, for me, I came back to C.S. Lewis and a guy called Gordon Corman, who's not particularly well known um, in Australia that I've found anyway, but he wrote some funny books when I was a, uh, a teenager. Um, do you find that when you were starting out uh, in, in, in what you were writing, there were particular voices of an author or some kind of influence that was really coming through strongly? Definitely, yeah. Paul Jennings for me. Oh, so mm, when I first started, yeah. I'd been reading his books for of every class I had. I'd sure. read Paul Jennings. And I found myself using these really short one-syllable words like mm-hmm. he does and just stringing them together to tell nice simple stories and I, I deliberately actually mimicked him just because that's what I thought I had to do yeah, and then yeah. after reading some out loud I thought gee it does sound a lot like a <laughs> like one of his stories and then of course from there you start to 
start to very slowly develop your own voice, and that yeah. comes with a lot of time, a lot of time and practice, I think. And even now, I still I love reading other authors' books and uh, getting ideas. So, so yeah, a big one, Paul Jennings, Tristan Banks as well, yep. has been a big hero, and and someone like Andy Griffiths for Australian, of course, yeah. person, Australian author who writes uh, children's books. It's hard not to channel what he does yeah the yeah. the idea of voice as well like voice is definitely something that's being talked about more in YA and children's work and i'm curious how do you define that I, what how is what's your definition of finding your voice what is that process is it just experience is it just a lot of writing what what exactly is that to you yeah uh, without making it sound daunting i think it sure. is a lot of writing yeah and i didn't realize that when I started I yeah. sort of would go through little bursts mm. and of writing and then not writing for a while but it was when it was continued for longer periods of time that I started to feel a lot more comfortable and sure. and for me I, I think the day I realized I had discovered as much of a voice as I could was when I wasn't thinking about it the mm. words were just coming yeah. out and I was more focusing on the story and the characters and I, I thought actually I'm not thinking about too much about the, the mechanics here mm. and then I read back over it and I thought this is it it, feel, it feels pretty good yeah. of course it needed editing but uh, <laughs> it felt as good as it could and I yeah. thought I think, I think I've got the voice and that was probably towards the back end of, uh, of my fourth book I think I look at yeah. the first three now and mm. I read them and I can still see the bits of Paul Jennings and bits of Tristan Banks and that kind of thing Yeah, I think it's something that doesn't necessarily get talked about by authors a lot necessarily the um, the discovery of a voice. I think it's a, a really key process. For me, I've been uh, thinking about it over the last you know, few months and, and trying to process a bit more around what that could look like. And I think it's because it's so, uh, it's so ingrained in your subconscious, these voices of authors that we love and the, the way that they tell stories. So you gotta write it, yourself out of it. Yeah, I think that's it, right? You gotta yeah. write yourself out of it a bit? Yeah, a little bit. I think it's curious because when you talk to authors, you definitely hear that, right? It, it's about those massive influences and the love of the writing sends them into writing. And it, you, you end up writing them in one sense. <laughs> yeah. And then it takes a while and then you process that and you're able to, to, to find your own voice without losing some of the magic that you've picked up along the way, I think. Um, I'm curious also, Tim, uh, translating that to kids. So for instance, what we've just been talking about, it's pretty inside baseball-y. Um, how do you translate that to kids and talk about the writing process? In terms of presentation? Yeah. Yeah, I, I probably would talk more about that in workshops as sure. opposed to presentations. So presentations, are yep. they're a lot more upbeat and mm -hmm. a lot more interactive. Um, so for workshops, I'll teach them tools, writing sure. tools, because to develop your skill as a writer, you've got to learn the, learn the tools. And Absolutely. I use the, um, the little example with them. I say, I talk about a kid I used to teach who he's right, and I show them slides. I show this mm. year one kid's writing from February, mm -hmm. and I show the same kid's writing in August, and wow. like, it would, you would knock your socks off. Yeah. And we talk about how handwriting is a tool, spelling is a tool, you know, understanding complex sentences. It's, there's so much in writing. So, by, But teaching them tools, it allows them to put together in their mind the mechanics of writing. And hopefully yeah. if they do that and they start writing enough, they find their own voice. There, there is one activity where we talk about voice a little bit. Mm. Uh, I'll just put a picture up and I'll say, here's a picture of a gorilla, mm -hmm. uh, write three sentences about it. But yeah. I don't tell them how to write it. And then after sure. they've written it, we walk around and say, hey, you did first person. Mm. Hey, you did third person. You did present tense. You did past tense. You described. You told a story. And they sort of, and they go, oh, yeah, like I wrote in my own little style. And that's a very basic example of, 
you know, yeah. trying, to, trying to illustrate to kids what voice might be, even though it's more, it's more technical. But yeah, it's yeah. definitely hands-on. It, it kind of reminds me of, you know, when you go for snowboarding lessons yep. and they're like, are you a dominant foot or not? And they just right. push you yeah. and see what, <laughs> see what foot you end up on. <laughs> but yeah. Dominant face plant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was me. That, that was the yeah, me kind I'm of snowboarder. Bottom, bottom into the, <laughs> into the snow. Um, I, I wonder as well whether in your experience, and so you, you've obviously spoken to a lot of kids um, and a lot, of, a lot of children in schools and stuff. Do you see a particular thread that comes through with, um, with kids who love to read already? Or do you see that in terms of the, the reading culture that you come across, do you find there are common threads that happen there? Is it a reading family? Is it uh, someone who's found an author they love that then propels them to write? Well, is there a common theme at all? I think home, and this is probably a very personal opinion, but I'm, yeah. I'm sure home would have a lot to do with it. Mm. So we try to read yeah. to our kids, and they, yeah. and they, as a result, I think we've done a pretty good job with them. They, they enjoy reading in bed at night time. Um, yeah, look, as a teacher, I suppose I saw it when we have encouraging parents who are happy mm. to support a child's sure. love of an author or getting the books, and then you, and that kid would be off and away. Mm. Um, as well, it's, yeah, it's a hard one because... Children generally love imagination. So mm. for the age I write, mostly they seem very happy readers. But of course, yeah. you hear that it slowly drops off. And yeah. there's this, once you hit the high school, mm. it becomes, okay, and life becomes busier. Bec- and when more you're in complex, high school, yeah. it, it, suddenly life is very social. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're, if you're, you know, if you have an interest for a sport, suddenly you spend a lot of time, yeah. like an instrument. And so mm. time gets taken into sure. passions and interests. But as kids, they're kind of exploring everything and mm. they're happy to try things and reading is one of them and they've just discovered how to read and there's that world of imagination. Yeah, so I think probably the bigger bigger issue would be trying to keep them reading uh, as yeah. opposed to get them reading, yeah. And, and it's nice. I do like talking to primary kids because they are so keen yeah. yeah, and they're happy to buy the books and read the books and they're happy to read other people's books and, and we often often say, what's your favourite book? And I say, oh, have you read this one? And we'll talk about other people's books. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, to instill that kernel of interest in them so early yeah, and then hope it right. continues. Well, Tim, thank you very much for joining us today. I always like these conversations and hopefully we'll have a lot more to come. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ian, for hanging out, yeah. being a great co-host. Thank you, Tim, once again. Thanks, Joel and Ian, for having me. Fantastic. And that wraps up our second episode from our series from Somerset. As always, a big thank you to the Somerset Celebration of Literature for making these conversations possible. And a big thank you to our guests, Jackie French and Tim Harris. We're back at the Brunswick Street Bookstore for more podcasts this year. So keep an eye out for those. And to do so, you can follow us on our Twitter at SpecFicVic. Thanks, and we'll see you on the next episode.